Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And in Romans chapter 6, we'll reflect upon the biblical ordinances that we celebrate here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City, and particularly in light or in lieu of the fact that we will celebrate both of those ordinances here on this same Lord's Day. When we turn, turn our attention to the book of Romans, it is a text in which the Apostle Paul systematically and very carefully walks through the theme for the epistle and the powerful and most important theme of the power of God in the gospel. As he systematically works through this gospel presentation, both dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles at the same time, he makes his way from chapter 1 to chapter 4 talking about the need for justification by faith alone in Christ alone for everyone, regardless of religious background, ethnicity, heritage, or race. In the beginning in chapter 5 through chapter 8, the Apostle Paul talks about some of the present blessings and benefits of salvation in Christ alone, but he also talks about the future as well, particularly in chapter 8 where he reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he finishes in those first eight chapters talking about the very basis of our faith, salvation in Christ alone, and the culmination of our faith when we see Him and become like Him, for we see Him as He is. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is, in the power of God through the gospel, for in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He begins with a succinct statement that it is in Christ alone that one comes to faith and salvation by faith alone, through grace alone. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he begins to describe the opposite, those who reject this gospel and the power of God to salvation. And he paints a very bleak picture of a world who, although they knew God and could know about Him through the creation around them as God revealed it to them, although they might know His invisible attributes, verse 19, namely His eternal power and divine nature clearly perceived. They chose a different path, and they chose to reject this God, to reject this understanding and awareness. And claiming to be wise, verse 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Even in this life, Paul goes on to say, once that choice is made to receive or to accept this power of God into salvation, there are eternal consequences, and in the end of chapter 1, the consequences are dire. And he gives over those who reject to their own sinful ways and the eternal consequences that come from it. He then reminds us in chapter 2 that there is no excuse for anybody when it comes to the testimony of Christ and the power of the gospel based upon what he shared already in chapter 1. 
In chapter 3, he speaks of the law, particularly for the Jewish people. And he says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul says in another text that the law was our schoolmaster. It was to show or reflect the honor and the glory and the majesty, the holiness of a perfect God, and how it was impossible for mankind to achieve that level and extent of of holiness. In essence, he is saying the law was to show you that you could not do this yourself but would still be accountable to God. In verse 20, he says, and by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The more you know of what God expects, the more guilt you incur. And then he concludes that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the good news are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In chapter 5, he begins to move away from his, his, his explanation, his, his depiction of the gospel as the power of God unto salvation, and he talks about what happens when one places their faith in this gospel and in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read and will read in another place that prior to that, you were enemies of God, vessels fit for destruction, separated and apart from God. But upon faith, you are justified. You are declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. And then he reminds us that that work is only accomplished in Christ. There's no synergy. You don't have to help him. There's no add-ons to this gospel that he has just gotten done explaining. In fact, he has wrestled every excuse from mankind, holding them ultimately accountable to the standard of holiness and reminding them Therefore, verse 18 of chapter 5, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. He comes to the greatest news of all. There's nothing you can do to help yourself, but He has done everything necessary to help you through the person and the work of Jesus Christ attain salvation and the power of this gospel for the newness of life. Sin has come upon all men, and all have sinned because of Adam. And let's face it, as we come of age, all have sinned because of our own personal choices. And because of that, you cannot resurrect yourself to life or restore yourself to a state of innocence. Only God can do that, and He does through His Son, Jesus Christ. His death his burial, and His resurrection. And it is only by one man's obedience, Christ on the cross, that you and I might know the hope of eternal life, the righteousness of God in Christ. Only through that death, burial, and resurrection can we know. As we continue to move down in this crazy postmodern age and era in which we live, 
Evangelicalism has not remained untouched by much of the individualism and much of the deconstruction and reconstruction of even the gospel. But here at First Baptist, we, we have no tolerance for that. There is one way, and there is one truth, and there is one life, and it is in Christ alone, by, by faith alone, through grace alone, and nothing that we can do. Based on the individual nature of society, our ecclesiology, our understanding of the, what, what the church is when God's people gather together, tends to be consumed by the question of, of what works. Pragmatism has not only moved to the center of our churchly solar systems, but like an aging star, this pragmatism has ballooned and swallowed everything in its orbit. Many people would consider us old-fashioned for the things that we are doing. Many might think that somehow going down into the water and coming up out of the water has imparted some kind of, of grace or merit to you, but none of that is true. And as Paul exposes all of that in the book of Romans, it is important, essential, that we get that right as well. As a result of the individualism, there's a tendency to neglect ecclesiology as a theological subject altogether, or at best, sketch a bare outline of what a church birthed by the gospel and grounded in the authority of Scripture should look like. A neglect of ecclesiology walks in lockstep with the individualistic and anti-institutional biases of the late modern West. And in this text, Bobby Jameson is talking about why baptism still matters. And here at First Baptist, we still believe the Bible is true, all of it, every page, every word, every punctuation mark. And we are called to salvation in Christ alone, to the power of the gospel, and then we are called to give public testimony of that through the waters of baptism. And that's why we do this on a regular basis. We also come to this table of communion. We'll get to that in a minute, but we're commanded as a body of believers to come and to celebrate. There's no magic in the elements. There's no magic in the things that we say. It is a symbolic reminder, a timely and important reminder of what Christ has done and what Paul has laid for us, or laid out for us in the book of Romans. When we get to chapter 6 in the book of Romans, there's a depth of theology that we simply can't expound upon in entirety. So we'll make some loose connections and help you understand what you saw happen this morning and what symbolically it was portraying, what, what symbolically it was showing us as to what has happened in each of these individual lives and why we first asked them if they'd accepted Christ. Upon accepting of Christ, there are things that take place in one's life that are immediate and eternal in nature. And what we do here is to reflect upon giving testimony of understanding that. Now, it's really important for us to understand that we don't backload the gospel. And there's an inherent danger even in fundamental conservative kind of Christians to take this, this celebration of, of baptism, the simplicity of the Lord's Supper, and, and, and try and turn it into something that, that it's really not, some, some pomp and circumstance, some, some kind of celebration that, that seems mystical. and na- None of that is true. This is simply a visual picture of things that have already taken place. And Paul here in chapter 6 talks about those things that have already taken place. And it, it leads us to an important conclusion 
we'll spend the rest of our time speaking to that important conclusion this morning. Listen to what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? As a result of Christ obedience making many righteous. What should we say then of all of our disobedience in a helpless state and Christ coming to our rescue? What can we say when, when sin is so big and separates us so far from God that the act of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, restores us and leads us to eternal life through the actions of Christ? Paul, Right? So, what shall we say then to all of these truths, these reflecting back on these prior chapters? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? In other words, if you've heard the message correctly, no matter how big your sin, no matter how great your sin, no matter how dark and evil your sin, God's grace is sufficient through Christ to save you and to rescue you and cleanse you from all of your sins. He's speaking collectively as Jesus Christ hung on the cross bearing the penalty for mankind, the sins of the world. All of those collective sins were not big enough to stifle the grace and the mercy and the love of God in Christ Jesus and the ability to pay the price in full, offering forgiveness and eternal life to all who believe. So, is this then to say, well, then I can keep on sinning because the more I sin, the more grace I get. Paul says to that very plainly in verse 2, by no means. What what, what are you talking about in essence, common vernacular? Haven't you been paying attention? In fact, he uses some of that language in the text. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? The more sin, the more grace, so let's continue in sin. I will remind you, next week as we get back to our study in 2 Peter, that's exactly what the false teachers were teaching. They were teaching an absolute libertarian kind of freedom. Once you come to Christ, you can live any way you want, and you can do anything that you want, and no matter what you do, God's grace is still big enough, and His His mercy is still great enough. It's almost an antinomianism. There are no rules. You can make them up all by yourself. That's the world that we're living in today. So, Paul says, am I teaching you that you can do whatever you want and continue in your sin because grace is bigger than your sin? Well, the last part is true. God's grace is always bigger than our sin, but He offers and affords no such freedom for us to live on our own terms and do our own thing, and continue to sin that somehow in our warped minds we might get more grace. He says, by no means. May it never happen. It cannot happen. It's anathema if it does happen. And if you continue in your sin without that transformation that comes from Christ, no matter what you say, you're still dead in trespasses and sin. For how can he who died to sin still live in it? 
How can you persistently continue to practice that which you know is wrong? How in stubborn determination can you simply go on proclaiming, I can do whatever I want when it is contrary to the Scripture? Paul says, you can't. May it never be a part of our life. May it never be a part of our speaking. May we always understand that something happens by faith in Christ alone. And he goes on to explain some of that both prior and after this text. And in this rhetorical question, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? If you have died to something, you've been separated from that. Why would you still live in that? That's the question that he poses and the conclusion that he makes in the rest of the text. As we look at the rest of this text, and as he declares, by no means should we allow ourselves to to fall back into a lifestyle of sin. Now, that's really important that we clarify this. He's not saying, if you ever sin again, you don't know the grace of God in Christ Jesus, because your own personal experience and and Paul's words in the next couple of chapters remind us that the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we do. Have you noticed that? (laughs) We certainly sin. Because of what's happened to you in Christ, because of this grace, you can't choose that as a lifestyle. You, you've died to that lifestyle. You are putting that lifestyle away. You can't flaunt your lifestyle by habitual persistence and practice against the clear commands of Scripture and still believe that somehow you're okay. He says you have died to sin. It is a transforming experience. You were dead, and you're not dead anymore, so stop acting dead. talking about the justification that we have in Christ alone that results in the sanctification of the believer where we put off the old man and we put on the new man and we are shaped and formed into the image of Christ. It doesn't happen overnight, but it always happens to those who place their faith in Christ alone. As he speaks to all of this, he reminds us that sin has no more dominion over us. It used to be we couldn't do anything but sin, but we are freed from the power of sin. Why do we keep going back? Because we still have this flesh where sin resides and temptation is real. Sometimes people do go back to besetting sins that they've carried over behaviorally and otherwise from from their life before Christ. But a true believer doesn't live there. A true believer acknowledges the conviction of the Holy Spirit. A a true believer exerts time and energy to to make right decisions and and calls upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit to, to show them and to keep them in the way. And it is simply inconceivable for someone who has been brought back from the dead, who died to sin, it is inconceivable, it's unthinkable that as Christians we can say, well, we'll stay there because where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. That is the evangelicalism of our culture today turning a blind eye to blatant black and white principles of Scripture and justifying them somehow through the grace of God. And Paul's saying, now wait a second, that's not how this works. And I know it smacks of lordship again. Well, I'll tell you, it is lordship again. He has bought you with a price 
the blood of the precious Lamb of God. He has rescued you. You have died to that old life. You have died to that sin. You have died and been separated. You've given a newness of life. You are called to live holy and righteous in this present age. And sometimes you stumble and fall, but the man of God and the woman of God don't go back and live that kind of lifestyle without the threat of conscience and conviction. Because when you become saved, you die, and it's unthinkable that you would go back and live that life of death. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? There is a, a picture that He will now paint, and He uses the term baptize or baptizo, and He uses it in a couple of different words. Commentators are, are somewhat… Uh, different in their understanding. Some see no reference to water baptism, only spiritual baptism. Some see only a water baptism uh, reference, no, no spiritual baptism. Others see both of those represented. Remember the text, and remember it within the context of Romans. The topic that he's addressing is not the nature of baptism, The topic that he's addressing is the nature of dying to sin and being made alive unto God through the work of Jesus Christ alone. So, as we keep that in mind in our interpretation, he reminds us that all of us should understand that having been baptized or immersed, oftentimes is talked about uh, being in union with Christ, we were baptized into his death. There's a lot of different aspects to this and, and some deep theological truth that we don't have the time to wade through. But he expounds a little bit further, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Somehow in this transaction that takes place when someone comes to know Christ as their Savior, They die to sin. They become alive unto God. They're recipients of grace and recipients of forgiveness, recipients of mercy. They are different people who now begin a transformational process for the rest of their lives where the Holy Spirit shapes them into the image of our Savior. And while that is a a transformational process that takes place over time, there's a transaction that takes place immediately, and it's an eternal transaction. When you accept Christ as Savior, and He He He, you you die to self and become alive unto God through grace alone, that grace keeps you for the rest of your days and places you standing before the throne of God boldly someday as we see Him and become like Him. The transaction is a one-time forensic kind of transaction where He imparts life unto us and forgiveness in Christ alone. But we know on a daily basis it is transformational over the time. In essence, regardless of whether it's water baptism or spiritual baptism, and probably both of those things can be found here, there's something that happens to you when you place your faith in Christ. You die to self. You go under the water. You raise to newness of life. You come up out of the water. And somehow in union with Christ and based on everything that He's accomplished for you 
and it fits into other deep and important theologies uh, and, and soteriology. Because of that union in Christ and because of everything that He has done, you are secure. You have been baptized into Christ, into His death, buried, raised again to newness of life, all because Jesus rose from the dead by the glory of the Father. Again, a reminder, you didn't do this. God did this. What are you raised to? Newness of life. A different way of living. A different way of speaking. A different way of thinking. A different way of doing life. Having been raised from the dead in Jesus Christ, dying to, dying to sin and to self, being given the freedom that sin hath no more dominion over us. I think that the church ought to spend a whole lot more time talking about being free from the dominion of sin. Get away from this notion that we can't help ourselves. Do you know in Jesus Christ you can? Sin has no more dominion over you. So why do you sin? It's pretty simple. You choose to. You choose to. But His grace is sufficient. And you can't go back and live that old life if you've been transformed to the transaction of justification. You are to walk in newness of life. So for those today who are saying, we know the Bible says this, but that's not relevant for today, so we must sanction civil marriage. And No. That's a life of a dead man. And we are no longer dead men. We have been raised to newness of life. We've been called to be accountable to the Scripture. The Spirit resides in our heart, and we live this, this crucified life, if you would. We live this life where we're no longer enslaved to sin. And how do we do that? He tells us in verses 12 and 13 about yielding our members as instruments of, unrighte- or, or of righteousness to God. And to live as if sin hath no more dominion over us. What does this relate to then? Well, let's, let's paint the picture of what happened this morning. These individuals came down into the baptism tank and they testified that they came to faith in Jesus Christ and accepted him and what he'd done as a personal Lord and Savior. Immediately when that happened in their life, They died to the old way. They became alive unto God through Jesus Christ, and He was beginning to transform their life. And in that process of transformation, they came to a point in time where they realized that in obedience they needed to be baptized and to come before the church and to make a public testimony that they were going to live their life in obedience to Christ. That's the newness of life. You see, too many times in our culture and even in evangelicalism, we want to bifurcate this justification and sanctification so you can be saved, but you don't need to be changed. But there is no such division in the Scripture. For once you're saved, you start to change. It doesn't happen overnight. Some of us are a work in progress. Some of us are just a piece of work, right? We're changing gradually, but by grace… It's doing a work in our life, and we're not the same person we used to be. You know, that's in Christ alone. That's what He's teaching us here. So, as they affirmed 
They place their faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, through, through grace alone. As they received the gospel, the power of God into salvation, they were also called to live a life of obedience, and that's why we ask them. Are you here to give public statement and testimony that you will live a life of obedience? All of that transaction took place in, in a spiritual realm, and now symbolically in a physical realm, we are simply showing you what happened. They died to self, and they rose to newness of life, and probably before they leave here, Satan will be after them, and that's why we pray for them. That's why we teach them, that's why we encourage them, and that's why we, we point them in the right direction. Baptism is a powerful form of proclamation of the truth of what Christ has done. It is a word and water testifying to the believer's participation, his union in the death and resurrection of Christ. And it's a symbol rather than merely a sign, for it is a graphic picture of the truth it conveys. We have died to sin. We have been made alive unto God through Jesus Christ. We will commit ourselves to live soberly and righteous in this present age. This symbol and action to reflect what has already been done. We can't, we can't backfill that gospel by saying, well, you have to pass a theology exam. No, you don't. You have to have all your ducks in. No, you don't. You have been miraculously rescued in Christ alone, and He started a work of transformation in your life. You simply must give testimony to that fact, and that's what, that's what we do. Will they stumble and fall? Did you? All right, so we'll just move on, right? We all stumble and fall. You're thankful His grace is sufficient. So we pray for them and we move on. We're reminded of the powerful truth found in Ephesians chapter 2. May I read it for you? It reflects some of the deep theology of Romans chapter 6. And you we're dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, that's what Paul said, all have sin and come short of the glory of God, and once we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know the best part of baptism for me? It reminds me I was once there where, where they are, just as dead and just as guilty, and equally a recipient of God's grace. It's a healthy reminder. That's why I love it so much. It's an important reminder to you as well. We were dead men walking until God injected life in us, and here's how Paul says it in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Did you, did you see what he juxtaposed? You were dead, and now you're alive. It's exactly what Paul's saying in Romans. So you stop living like a dead man and start walking in newness of life. It's exactly what he's saying. He's explaining this power of God, this gospel of Jesus Christ, and all of this has happened by grace and unmerited favor. You didn't do this. God has done it for you, and you have been rescued, forgiven, raised up with Him, 
and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches… Did you catch that? Immeasurable riches. Don't squander your inheritance. Immeasurable riches. We are called to live in newness of life. Immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, and we can add alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then what happens once we die to sin and are made alive unto God through Jesus Christ? We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, newness of life, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Water, baptism, represents the spiritual miracle of grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ alone. It represents the transformation of the life of of an individual through grace alone, by faith alone. It represents the death of the old man and and the coming of a new man. It, It represents a commitment to walk in obedience to Jesus for the rest of our life. That's why we practice water baptism. That's why we do it by immersion. It is the very picture of what Paul depicts and describes in Romans chapter 6. And then, of course, a less deep theological way in Ephesians chapter 2. And I would suggest to you this morning that it's a glorious gospel. And how is it a glorious gospel? That God in His great love for us would send His only begotten Son into this world to pay your penalty and my penalty, rightly deserved, the reality of justice served. Give His life on Calvary, shedding His blood, securing the promises of Romans 6 and Ephesians chapter 2. And making something completely different out of your life and my life through faith in Christ alone. As we consider this glorious gospel, particularly in light of of what Paul says in, in Ephesians, we're reminded once again that this glorious gospel is also depicted in this table, the Lord's the Lord's table. In similar fashion, there is nothing spiritual necessarily that is imparted to us by these elements. There's no magic or mystery in all of this. It is a reminder of what Paul has taught us in Romans chapter 6. God did this. Well, what did He do? Christ died for your sins according to the Scripture. He shed His blood to pay for the sins of many. He died on the cross for for you and for me, not, not in some mysterious kind of way that that the mystics would like us to believe that, that, that somehow, this is pretty simple. You were dead, He died, and by faith you're alive unto God forevermore. 
And it's only because of what he did on the cross. So not only do we depict this morning in the waters of baptism, this miraculous spiritual trans- transaction and transformation, we depict when we gather at this table what Christ has done on our behalf. And at least for me, it's a pretty humbling time. At least for me, it's really grounding. At least for me, I, I need to be reminded that I didn't do this. <laughs> he, he's not dying anew every time we do this. He died once for all, for the sins of many. You and I have short memories and just need to be reminded that he died once for all, for the sins of many. You see, these are ordinances. We, we are giving visual symbols of what our Savior has done in the midst of this glorious gospel. And He did it for you and I. So when the Apostle Paul gives instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about this table, he uses some of the same simple and vivid language that he uses in Romans for that spiritual baptism reflected symbolically in water baptism. Paul says, for I received of the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The waters of baptism proclaim the miraculous salvation that we have in Christ alone, dying to our former life, being risen to a newness of life solely by faith and by by grace in Christ alone. And at this table of remembrance, this table of communion, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we celebrate what He did until the day that we see Him. Why is it going to end there? For we shall see Him and become like Him, and we shall see Him as He is. And there is no more reminder necessary. We shall see Him face to face. What a glorious thought that is. Until then these ordinances matter to remind us of what Christ has done, to remind us of what Christ has done, and to move us forward to live our lives and to walk in the newness of life. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 also says, before you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, examine yourself. Why does he say that? (laughs) Because we don't want anything in our lives borrowed or attached from that old man. Those besetting sins, those those sins that dominate us, it's an offense to God who's rescued you from all of this and called you to newness of life. We have the opportunity. If we confess, he's faithful and just and forgiven to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we should continue in sin then, that grace might abound. You see where it goes full circle? Ridiculous. God forbid. 
God forbid. The sobering reality reminds us of what Christ has done. It reminds us of what He's doing. Oh, by the way, it reminds us of what He will do. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until He comes, and He is coming again. That's a little bit of ecclesiology. That's why we gather. That's why we do these things. And I suspect we all need a reminder from time to time. At least I do. These are specially important to me as it brings us back to the things that matter most. I'd like to ask Jody Larnard if you'd ask the blessing on the bread. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather today at your table, I just pray, Lord, that we will always remember that while the gift of salvation is free to us, this gift of salvation was not free, that this gift of salvation came with the breaking of your body. And as we take this bread, may we never forget the sacrifice that you made for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
The scriptures teach us that in the same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Bill Cole, would you ask a blessing on the cup? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day that you've given us. I thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, who is willing to come down from his throne in heaven and dwell among us here on earth to teach us and to show us the way, and then to sacrifice his body on the cross shed his blood for us that we might have forgiveness of sins Lord I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us to the uttermost and I thank you that once we're saved nothing can pluck us out of your hand you truly are an awesome God worthy to be praised in Jesus precious name I pray these things amen in the same manner also when he had supped, Christ took the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, writes, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Father, we thank you for the importance of these reminders, these symbols this morning, taking us back to the very foundations of our faith, the glorious gospel in Christ alone, grace alone, by faith alone. We thank you for the privilege of watching these five individuals stand before us, committing to walk in newness of life. We thank you that we can know they walk in newness of life because of your grace and mercy and forgiveness. We pray that you would find us faithful in praying as they walk in newness of life. We thank you for this table of remembrance, the price of our salvation, the cost of our deliverance. We're humbled. In that humility, we worship today and all that we've said and done. We give honor and glory to the only place it can be given, to the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ.
Thank you for these reminders. Bless us as we take this benevolence offering. May we live out the admonition of Paul and Ephesians as we care for one another, as we use these funds to, to encourage and support the body here at First Baptist, all for your glory alone as we walk in newness of life. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.